Hello and welcome to the Missing Link in Neovascular AMD podcast series. My name is Carl Rogelio. I'm the Chief of the Retina Service at Will's Eye Hospital and partner at Mid-Atlantic Retina in Philadelphia. I'll serve as the moderator for this podcast, and our goal is to have an open and honest discussion on the topic at hand. This podcast episode will explore emerging surgical options for treating neovascular AMD, clinical implications, and impact. It is my pleasure to have with me on this podcast, Dr. Carlo, Tennessee Retina in Nashville, Tennessee, and Dr. Dante Paramici, California Retina Consultants and Research Foundation in Santa Barbara, California. Welcome, Carl and Dante. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. In terms of format, this podcast is part of an editorially independent program exploring treatment burden in nevascular AMD and new and novel agents in development that may help us address these issues in the clinic. Although the program is supported by advertising, the discussion, views, and opinions expressed here are solely those of the participants. So to kick it off, a little background. I'm gonna say for a long time, we've been talking about the prospect of sustained anti-VEGF delivery to reduce the treatment burden and hopefully improve long-term vision outcomes in our patients with neovascular AMD. Well, it finally looks like it's right around the corner. And when we're talking about sustained delivery, I'm gonna say we'll define that as getting maintenance of disease control, good disease control for at least six or more months. And now we're gonna focus on the surgical approaches that are furthest along in development and what do we have for options? Well, for the most part, that's the port delivery system or PDS and gene therapy in the form of RGX314. So both of our participants here tonight have a lot of experience with these programs in development. PDS has made it into now through phase three development and RGX is in phase three testing. So maybe we'll start with Dante. Dante, tell me a little bit about what PDS is, the port delivery system. Well, it's a port delivery system is a very neat device, in my opinion. It's a little device that you place surgically. It, it holds about 20 microliters of drug, and it really is a platform technology. It's placed in the surgical outpatient procedure through the pars plana and covered with conjunctiva. It can be refilled multiple times and can be used with a number of different uh, agents. Right now, it's been tested with ranibizumab at a high concentration for the treatment of of neovascular AMD. And uh, as we'll talk about tonight, I think it shows a lot of promise to help our patients. So it's placed in the OR setting. It's, it's fixed in the sclera, but not with sutures. It's held in place in the sclera. Of course, delivers drug by passive diffusion, high concentration, as you mentioned, of the drug, ranibizumab, uh, passive diffusion uh, down a concentration gradient into the vitreous to give us that sustained release of anti-VEGF. And then it's refilled, right, in the office, um, and tell me, um, Carl, you've had experience with the device, both the placement and the refill. Um, what is the refill uh, like in the office? The refill is similar but different from a regular intravitreal injection. So it is nice that it's an office procedure, patient in their street clothes, topical anesthesia and topical antisepsis, but it's very important to enter uh, the septum of the port delivery system with this special dual bore needle. So when we refill the PDS, we're actually exchanging the contents, taking out 
the current contents that have been depleted of molecules of ranibizumab and replacing it with fresh solutions. So this dual bore needle uh, needs to enter perpendicular to the septum and very precisely. So uh, when I perform these procedures, I wear an illuminated loop uh, headset, which I would never do for a regular intravitreal injection. So uh, other than that, the setup is very simu similar, speculum and the same sort of drops and, and setup, but the precision with which we need to locate the entry of the needle and the need to be perpendicular is different. Then it's a simple uh, press of the special syringe plunger and the contents are exchanged. There's, it's very visible to see the old solution come up into a special reservoir at the end of the syringe and then pull it out and, and we're finished. So Dante, would it be fair to say that any vitreoretinal surgeon can do both the surgery and the refill, you know, the learn to do this? And it, it, is, it does require learning though, is that right? I mean, anything special you think needs to be done? Yeah, I think, I think a, a vitreoretinal surgeon should be capable of doing, these, doing the surgical procedure, first of all, and certainly the refill. I agree with Carl, the refill is more difficult than doing a simple intravitreal injection. And I also, as I'm getting older, find that using the headset with the lights and some magnification for the refills necessary, but not for intravitreal injections. As far as the surgery is concerned, yes, it's any vitreoretinal surgeon should be able to learn how to do this, but it's not the kind of things that we commonly do in vitreoretinal surgery. We're taking the conjunctiva down and you need to be very meticulous about that. We're making a scleral incision, a cut down incision to the choroid and then cauterizing with the laser. And again, we have to measure things very precisely the wound has to be very accurate. The cauterization has to be good because these meticulous details make a big a difference in the outcome. Reduction in complications like vitreous hemorrhage. Uh, these, the implant's gonna be in there for the life of the patient and we want it to stay there. We don't want the conjunctiva to erode over it because this can lead to complications such as endophthalmitis. So yeah, I think it's something that there's a definitely a learning curve. I think that, uh, there's a lot of material to learn from artificial uh, learning uh, set with um, um, uh, with different devices and uh, and proctoring with other doctors and 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 special uh, in all, in the operating room uh, helpers can be very important in this procedure. So yes, it can be learned. We shouldn't take it for granted that, hey, I'm a vitreoretinal surgeon. I can do complicated PVR cases. I can just jump right in and do this. I think there's a real learning curve for this. Yeah, there's some important, I think, uh, descriptors that you both used. Um, there's some unique aspects to the procedure and the refill. Um, not difficult per se, but precision uh, is important, especially in the surgical uh, portion or even the approach or angle that you um, access the device to refill when you do the refill exchange, as Carl mentioned. Um, so there's things to learn, um, but as you said, we do much more complicated things, much more involved operations and procedures. So it's something that we could easily adopt, um, but it will take some special training. There's no doubt about it. Um, let's talk about how it's actually performing. You also, by the way, alluded when it came to the surgery and the techniques that we've learned a lot um, as we went from phase two, the latter study into phase three. So let's talk first about how the device actually performs. I mean, um, in phase two, what was that study? That's the latter study. And then phase three, 
Um, what was the difference in how that performed? Uh, Carl, why don't you kick it off with ladder phase two? Well, well, ladder was interesting in its design in that we did not perform a refill until certain criteria were met, disease activity criteria based on changes in OCT and loss of vision. And based on those criteria, 80% of patients made it 15 months before they needed their first refill. So the, the durability of a single uh, implantation with one fill of drug was really you know, tremendously impressive. Oh, actually that was the median time to the first refill was 15 months. 80% of patients made it six months before they needed uh, their first refill. So that was really quite impressive to see how much uh, drug effect we could get from this very small amount of ranibizumab uh, placed in the reservoir of the PDS. Yeah, I was uh, very impressed with the performance at phase two, and I'll say upfront as equally impressed with the performance at phase three, because what you'd expect is the ability of the device, this is maintenance phase therapy, right? Because patients were previously treated with at least a few injections. And so they pretty much had their maculas mostly dried up or completely dried up. And so compared to gold standard monthly injections, it performed as well in terms of maintaining the BCVA and maintaining um, pretty much a flat OCT curve, which is tremendous. I mean, it was identical uh, to monthly ranibizumab over that entire time frame, over 22 um, mean months of follow-up in ladder. That was phase two. So performance was excellent. Patients were 2040 uh, mean at baseline, 2040 um, at final. And so that's maintenance of the vision. That's exactly what you want out of good sustained delivery. So perform very well. And side effect profile, we'll get to that because ladder uh, in archway, the phase three, actually had very similar safety profile, at least especially after the surgical technique was modified to reduce hemorrhage rates, as Dante, you mentioned. So Dante, archway, phase three. Now, that was a different study design. What did that tell us? Yeah, the archway is a phase three trial, really, to get a registration trial for FDA approval. And so in this trial, they looked at the data from the latter trial, and it looked like 80% of the patients could go at least six months without needing a refill. So they decided, let's go head-to-head with the PDS refilled with the high dose, 100 milligram per ml ranibizumab every six months versus monthly ranibizumab injections. And so let's see if we do get the same visual and anatomical outcomes at around 40 weeks, an average of 40, 44 weeks. And it was a non-inferior and equivalent trial. So it was really trying to look at two different approaches or deliveries, one with a monthly injection versus a PDS every six months to see, do we end up with equivalents? And we did. Actually, the PDS being refilled every six months was equivalent and non-inferior to the monthly ranibizumab injections. And again, these were patients who had been previously treated. Uh, and so what we were really looking for was stability in the vision and stability in the anatomical outcomes. And they were identical for the most part between the two arms of the study. Yeah. Again, I have to say very impressive. And I had the opportunity to present longer term follow-up up to 72 weeks. Now that's through three refill exchanges. Cause again, you mentioned mandated six month refill exchanges in archway. Um, 98% did not need any supplemental treatment through the first refill exchange at month six and 
95% did not need any supplemental injections in the device arm through the second refill exchange. And through 72 weeks, now it's three refill exchanges, it's amazing. The visual acuity, 2032 at baseline, 2032 at the end. OCTs compared to uh, monthly ranibizumab were identical. Um, so there's no doubt about it. We're getting the performance we hope for out of true sustained delivery. Um, excellent exudative control. Now, everything has trade-offs. There is safety. It's a, it's, a, it's a surgery and it's a device. So you cannot expect this to be as clean looking as a single intravitreal injection. But bear in mind, this is, this is designed to deliver drug over many months, if not very many years. And so you have to really consider it in, in terms of complications per patient, because a patient getting wet AMD treatment is going to get many injections over years. So complications. So we had vitreous hemorrhage. Uh, we had conjunctival issues over the device. We had um, endophthalmitis and we had device dislocations. These are the major sort of uh, issues, uh, adverse events with the device that would be unique to the device, of course. Um, and um, these rates where I can throw them out to you right now, endophthalmitis. Now this is through the 72 week time frame in Archway. 1.6%, um, this is per patient endophthalmitis and 0.6% in the Lucentis monthly arm. So there was a case of endophthalmitis in uh, the monthly arm. Conjunctival issues in general, something that might require something to fix around four, four and a half percent. Vitreous hemorrhage in the four to six percent range. Most of that was mild and didn't need any other interventions. So are these acceptable to you? Is this, is this something you would say, yeah, I'm going to offer this to patients. I think this is accept an acceptable trade-off. Carl, what do you think? Yes, to me, uh, they are acceptable, even though I believe they're very much improvable. So I, I think that if the only basis by which we've judged this is the rate of endophthalmitis, for instance, then probably they're not acceptable. But we have to remember that the, this complication rate, which I'm sure we'll talk about, I think, which can be modified, also comes with this tremendous vision outcome. So we know that in the real world, it's highly unlikely that over this period of time, patients receiving intravitreal injections would get regular monthly injections with no loss of vision. It's just not when tends to happen. We learned that lesson, unfortunately, quite harshly during this pandemic, where for a number of reasons, Lots of visions, uh, lots of visits were missed, and some lines of vision, I think, were lost. I would have loved to have had a long-acting delivery uh, treatment platform of some some sort in many of my patients' eyes during this pandemic uh, when they couldn't come in for visits. So, Dante, do you believe in practice uh, your complication rate could be better than what we saw in Archway, based on what we've learned, based on your own experience? Yeah, I certainly think so. I mean, if we look at the latter trial and the beginning of the latter trial, the rates of vitreous hemorrhage was about 50% in the first 20 patients or so. And we went back and we looked at it and we said, how can we change this procedure? And we, we did the scleral cut down and the cauterization and that reduced the rate to 5%. And I think it's the same thing as we were learning along the way, we've learned how important closing the conjunctiva and tenons is, is how meticulous you need to be with our suturing at the end. 
we're finding out more recently that we really have to be very precise in measuring the wound. A, a wound that's too large may be a setup for a potential dislocation during a refill procedure. So I think we're, we're constantly thinking about how we can make this surgical procedure better. And that's, I think it's pretty common with any new surgery that's come out. If you went back and you looked at the original series of patients, and then you looked at what happened a year, two or three down the line, there was much improvement. Even with endophthalmitis, if you look at the original trials with intravitreal injections, the rates of endophthalmitis were relatively high compared to what we are comfortable with in our clinical practice. So I think with these you know, meticulous uh, surgical procedure, learning along the way, I think we can reduce. And I'm optimistic like Carl uh, that we can do better as time goes on, but it's gonna require a lot of training and um, open-mindedness to uh, improving things. And retina specialists, we constantly like to make things better. So this is right up our alley. Yeah, I do really agree. I had a very good experience with the device and patients um, through phase two and phase three. I just saw patients the other day with the device that have had it in five or six years now uh, from when ladder started. And um, I also believe we can get the, uh, the rates down and to a very acceptable level. Um, we've learned a lot, there's no doubt about it. Um, so um, I think this is gonna get traction in practice and we'll talk a little bit more about how we're gonna use it potentially. Um, what I'd like to say, one more thing that was encouraging about the long-term follow-up data is that most of the complications associated with the device actually were in the first 40 uh, weeks, the early on. Um, after that, very few new events, serious events took place other than the dislocations that you mentioned. So that was really encouraging. We're seeing, we're seeing a lot of new events with conjunctiva and endophthalmitis. So uh, stay tuned because a lot more longer term data are coming with the extension studies. Let's move along to RGX because, you know, gene therapy could really be the game changer, right? Uh, RGX314 uh, has now made it through a phase one, two, a study, uh, five dose cohorts, open label, previously treated patients, given a single administration of this gene therapy to produce an anti-VEGF uh, antibody fragment akin to ranibizumab. Um, it is introduced or placed, dosed under the retina. So it requires a vitrectomy and subretinal injection. So, um, Carl, tell me what your, your thoughts are about this, what you've seen with the trial results. Does this look promising? Well, it's tremendously promising. You know, the idea that with a single surgery that really leaves the surface of the eye unblemished, you know, ultimately uh, could achieve these long-term outcomes is great. So obviously there's a, a certain skill involved with the vitrectomy and the subretinal injection, but this is something that uh, vitro-retinal surgeons have been doing for many years. So the, the way in which it has to be done has to be done with a bit more care, but it's still fundamentally similar to procedures we're familiar with. So I think technically it's going to be quite doable. It really, the proof will be in what are the long-term outcomes of the gene therapy? What are any associated complications that we see from the gene therapy, but I think this is one that say, unlike PDS, we won't worry quite as much about long-term surgical complications. There may be short-term complications that we have to deal with. It's really more than what's the long-term benefit of the gene therapy. Yeah, I agree. This is um, really fascinating stuff. And in, in this phase one, two study, 
the high dose cohorts starting with three and then particularly five did dramatically reduce um, the annualized rate of injections and, and many patients did not need any further supplemental injections and now follow up is well over a year in the highest dose cohort. Uh, so looking like it's performing like it should, maintenance of vision gains and a good OCT control, um, very few um, drug-related adverse events. Um, of course, it's vitrectomy. So this is being done in pseudophagic guys, so we don't have to worry about the cataracts. Um, so you can really get good, accurate vision results from these studies. And now it's moved on and we're actively in the phase three atmosphere study, which is similar um, dosing subretinal injection via vitrectomy. Uh, but I should mention to be complete, um, this program also has a suprachoroidal delivery um, uh, approach that's being tested now in phase two. Uh, for neovascular MD, that's the AV8 study. In DME, there's a DME phase two study, again, suprachoroidal um, uh, of the gene solution in, in essence. Um, and that could really um, bring us to an exciting stage of a one and done without even going to the OR. So that's, that's really futuristic, if you will, but it's not all that far away for in phase two. Uh, Dante, uh, your thoughts and experiences with um, subretinal injection of the gene product and uh, what phase one, two is showing? Yeah, I agree with what's been said. I, uuh, you know, it's a surgical procedure, I think, that we're more comfortable with. We are, we're doing vitrectomies all the time, and it's actually a relatively straightforward vitrectomy. You, you just inject a little bit of the drug under the retina. So, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of new learnings like the PDS might, just different, not that we can't learn the PDS, but it's just different from what we do. So I agree with Carl that I think that the surgical complications of a subretinal delivery are certainly going to be very manageable and things we're comfortable with. The real, the real issue is gonna be the long-term safety of we're genetically altering cells in the eye. We're, turning them into fat biofactories really to make protein. And what happens to a cell when you do that one, two, three, four, or 10 years down the road? I mean, are they gonna survive? Are they gonna be go into a senescent stage or something like that? This is what we'll find out over time. And I agree, if you can do it in the office with a super choroidal or an intravitreal injection, then that's gonna win the race at the end of the day compared to a subretinal delivery because it'll be something you just do in the office. And one and done or one and maybe a few supplements along the way is going to make a big difference as well. So I'm excited about that. I think that this is sort of the sort of thing that five years ago seemed almost like science fiction. And that science fiction is today here in retina, just as much as it is making our vaccines for the coronavirus. So gene therapy is here, here to stay. Yeah. The future is now, as they say, right? Yep. So, uh, right. and um yeah, I agree. Very exciting. Uh, and it's interesting to see both programs in parallel, phase three, subretinal, and so forth. And long-term follow-up is going to be key. We need to know the safety profile and exactly how it's going to perform over time. You know, maybe it wears off, whatever. Uh, we just want to see, we don't want to see harm done that we can't reverse, right? Or can't prevent. With that, we'll take a break. So with these very exciting, truly sustained delivery approaches on the horizon, we now have to start thinking about how we're gonna use them. 
um, let's let's say the port delivery is in our hands right now because that that could potentially be available to us within the next couple of years. Um, Carl, what type of patients are you going to think about using this in? The first patients I'd consider using the port delivery system in are the ones who continually ask about it. Patients who are coming in every four weeks to get injected, they typically have good vision but persistent subretinal fluid. And I think those are excellent candidates for this device because those are the ones that will truly will change their lives from having to find a way to make it to our office every four weeks, you know, rain or shine, you know, snow or sun uh, to being able to come in, you know, every six months or more for a refill and maybe to do something that's much less onerous in between for occasional monitoring, whether it's with a future home OCT device or even just coming into the office at their convenience for an OCT without necessarily having to have a full-blown dilated examination by a retina specialist. So that there's a lot of those patients in my practice. Yeah, so we're gonna target those frequent flyers, the every four, six weeks, maybe even every eight weeks, right? If you can't extend them, we're all doing this treat and extend-like approach. Um, and they may not necessarily be patients with fluid, right? They could be under good control, but just needing it very frequently. Um, Dante, do you think uh, you're gonna hear some pushback when you say, oh, you know, this is gonna take a trip to the OR with a little piece of silicone uh, in your eye wall? You know, for some patients that might, I mean, there are that group of patients that comes in every six or eight weeks and they're relatively happy with that. It's a social event for a lot of my older patients and they don't mind getting out of the house uh, and, at times. And so that patient may say, you know, doc, I'm, I'm happy with this because think about it. I mean, it's not just a trip to the OR. It's probably a trip to your general medical doctor to get a pre-op evaluation then go to the OR, then come in the day afterwards and the week afterwards. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of upfront extra work for the patient. So a patient who's comfortable coming in every two months or month even, or every six weeks and is happy with the way things are going may say, no, thank you. Uh, but I think a lot of the patients, and I have those patients that Carl mentioned too, that they're always asking about it. And even the ones who are in the studies who have it in one eye, and are getting injections in the other eye, I want to know when they can get the implant in, in their fellow eye now. So yeah, I think it's going to be the frequent flyers for, for sure. But for some of the frequent flyers may be happy with what we're doing and uh, that's fine. Yeah, you know, the studies uh, seem to suggest those frequent flyers of the every four, five or six week inject in, in, uh, injected patients, um, probably about a third of our patients. Um, so it's a very big uh, pool of patients that might consider this device. Um, so the, the question now becomes, you know, we know it works well. We know patients could go a year or more before needing a refill. So it definitely will decrease the treatment burden. But what about the monitoring now? Does it mean that the patients can just get the device and I'll see you in six months? Or how are you going to follow these patients? Because you have to look to see if the device is being tolerated. Do you not, Carl? Yes, I think I'll follow them pretty carefully initially uh, for a couple of reasons. Not so much concern about breakthrough of a disease activity because the studies really are pretty reassuring about that. We have learned, however, that this risk of endophthalmitis is associated with conjunctival retraction or erosion. And although I think that can be prevented quite a bit by meticulous surgical technique, we've also seen that if we identify that retraction or erosion 
early uh, than uh, taking them to the OR to uh, do a little revision of the conjunctiva and tenons over the device can keep the eye healthy and safe and, uh, and eliminate that endophthalmitis risk for that patient. So I think that at least till I learn a little better the ways that we can predict which uh, devices will stay well covered indefinitely, I'll want to look at people relatively uh, frequently, maybe every other month or something like that to, to look at the conjunctiva and And perhaps we'll have ways that we can actually teach the patients to monitor them this themselves, or maybe take a picture of their eye, you know, and send it to us so we can look. I think eventually we'll be able to feel quite safe about how these patients are doing with uh, a much less um, time time intensive sort of evaluation in the office. Yeah, I agree. Looking at that safety profile, um, it may just mean seeing them somewhat frequently in the first year, and uh, if they're doing well and conjunctiva is holding up and so forth, it may not need to be that, that frequent thereafter. And as you said, with remote monitoring in some way, and that includes both disease remote monitoring, home OCT, or, or ways to image um, or have patients learn to, to look at their device and check for problems, um, that, that might be the way to go. So uh, it probably could reduce uh, all aspects of burden, if you will, coming to the patient, coming, have the patient come to the office and so forth. I have to say, you know, when you th when I think of these options and potentially others to come, when you look forward five years, these could both be in our hands. And we use terms like, or probably overuse terms like game changer and disruptive, but these are going to be disruptive. I think the way we manage uh, wet AMD with these types of true sustained delivery is really going to change um, in how we see our patients in our office and so forth. So I thank you both for your for wonderful insight. You both had a wealth of experience with these devices, these approaches, and I uh, really look forward to seeing how it's all gonna play out in the near future. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.